A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but, but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, and or even by reason of strength eighty, yet their span is but toil and trouble, they are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of your days. Make us glad for, for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of your hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Thanks, Lacey. Thank you. Good morning, guys. How's everybody doing? Okay? All right. All right. Yes, as Lacey said, we are starting a, uh, a new series this morning in Psalm Psalm 90, and I am I'm super excited to, to dive into this psalm uh, with you, really over the next uh, nine weeks here at Flourishing Grace. We're going to be sitting in this one, this one chapter for almost, almost all the way up to, to Easter together. Um, and I think there's so much for us to, to glean from this. I'm excited uh, to dive into it today. Let's do this. Let's just pray real quick. I'll pray over you, pray over, over our time, and we'll get into the Word. Father, we come before you. We praise you for all that you've done so far. Uh, the ability to sing over one another, to sit uh, in, in the truth of your word through songs, um, to be a part of a church that is so active in, in the lives of our, of our families, seeking to um, build community through small groups and disciple our kids through midweek activities that extend into the home that we might be uh, shaped and molded into parents that are discipling our kids. And um, I, I just pray that Right now, as we open your word, you would soften our hearts, that you give us ears to hear. I know that every single time we open this word, you have something for us. So would you feed us today? Would you, would you satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love? By the power of your word, I pray this in your sweet name. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen, friends. Psalm 90 um, is, is really a fascinating psalm. Uh, if you notice there at the very beginning, as Lacey read that, she said, it's a psalm of Moses, which is, which is actually kind of strange. It's the only psalm that we have that's a psalm of Moses. Um, and for thousands of years, it has been attributed to Moses. Um, there, there is some debate around this, right? Did Moses really write this psalm or did he not write this psalm? Uh, we don't have any evidence that would suggest 
really strong evidence that would suggest that he did write it. We don't have any strong evidence that would suggest that he didn't write it. Um, the reason why we attribute it to Moses is because tradition. For, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, before the days of Jesus, in ancient Israel, they were attributing this psalm to Moses. That's, that's why. Um, it, that's what we've been told for, for thousands of years, that Moses had something to do with this psalm, right? Now, did he actually literally write it? We don't know. Or, or was it a prayer that he, he prayed and then someone else, maybe, maybe a prophet or somebody kind of turned into a song that would have been sung among the, amongst the people? Either way, here, here's the truth of it. It doesn't ultimately matter exactly how it went down. It, it really doesn't. In some way, shape, or form, we believe that this psalm is, as, is, is linked to Moses. He, he had a hand in its writing in some way, shape, or form. And there's so much here in this psalm for us to kind of, kind of unpack and, and to look at. We believe that this psalm was written at the kind of the end of his days, or spoken kind of at the end of his days, at the end of Moses' life. The, the reason why we believe that is because there's a difference between the wisdom of an older man and the wisdom of a younger man. I'm not saying that young men can't be wise. They absolutely can. And they absolutely should walk in wisdom. But when an old man speaks wisdom, you just, it just sounds different, right? There, there's just something different in, in, in the words of a wise old man. There are things that he knows and things that he sees that you just don't get when you're at young age. And Moses here is clearly, when you, when you look at the things that he's saying, the way that he's talking, he, he's at the end of his days. He's at the end of his days, and he's looking back over his life, and, he, and he's kind of praying this prayer over, over his people, over the nation of Israel. The psalm is broken into two parts. There's kind of this, there's a beginning and there's an end. And right there in the middle, I think it's verse 12, uh, everything kind of begins to shift and change. There's this kind of this transition verse. And the first part of, of, of the psalm, those first 12 verses, are really a lot of um, doctrine, a lot of theology, uh, kind, of, kind of some truths that Moses is bringing his audience to. And then the second part is kind of all, all of this application. Like, here, here's what we need to be asking God for. Here's what we need our lives to be about. And so for those of you who are in the room or like, who are kind of those like, just tell me what to do and how to do it and I'll just get it done, right? If that's you, you're like, just, I'll Tell me what to do. You're going to love the second half of this series, right? Like, you're going to be like, okay, here's all of the application. Like, this is what we do, right? But here's the reality. If you, if you try to get there without knowing the why, right? Some of you in the room are like, don't tell me what to do. You need to convince me why I should do what I need to do, right? You, you just love the why. Give me why. I need to know why we're doing this. I'll do anything you want me to do, but I need to be sold first, that's the first half of the psalm. The first half of the psalm is, is like, here's, here's why you should pray this way. Here's why you should look at God and consider these things in your life this way. And, and, and it's so deep and it's so rich and it's so beautiful. There's so much in the latter half of the psalm. But if you skip over the why, you'll never actually get there. You may try to get there. You may, you may ask for those things, but your heart will not be ready for it. And so today, and over the next few weeks, we're going to prepare our hearts for the second half of this psalm together. So let's look. This morning, we're going to look at the first three verses of the psalm. Verse 1 reads this way. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. 
You've been our dwelling place in all generations. Let's just stop there already. I know. We're only one verse in. Here, here, think about this for a moment. I said earlier that we believe this was written or spoken by Moses when he was up there in years. What was Moses doing at the end of his life? Where was he? What was happening as an old man? It's in the desert, in the wilderness, right? For those of you who maybe aren't familiar, brushed up on the history of Moses, right? Moses was the guy that God appears to in the burning bush, right? Have you ever seen Charlton Heston and Moses, right? You, you know the story, right? God appears to Moses in a, in a burning bush, and he says, I'm going to send you into Egypt. You're going you're to free my people. You're going you're gonna to free the Israelites. And, and sure enough, Moses goes to Pharaoh, right? Long story short, the, the plagues come to Egypt. And he says, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. And all these crazy things happen. And, and eventually Pharaoh's like, fine, you can, you can have them. And he releases the Israelites. And Moses is taking the Israelites and they're leaving. Then Pharaoh changes his mind, right? God, God parts the sea. They walk across on dry ground. And then the Egyptians follow. God closes the sea and drowns them all. It's this, it's this epic tale, right? Moses goes up on the mountain, Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments, gets the whole thing, right? The whole, this, is, this is the story. But it doesn't end there, right? They, they are promised something, a land. This promised land. This is where Moses is going to take the people. God says, I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, this, this perfect, sweet, beautiful place. And Moses is going to lead the people there until Numbers 20. In, in Numbers 20, Moses messes up. God tells Moses, they're in, they're in the wilderness, they're in the, they're in the desert, and he's leading the people to the promised land. And, and, and there's no water. There's no water for the people. There's no water for their, for their, for their livestock. There's no water for their animals. And so, so Mo, God tells Moses, hey, go tell that rock over there to give you some water. And Moses is ticked, right? The, the people, if you, if you know anything about the history of the people of Israel, they're not like the kindest people in the world. They're not, the, you know, they're not patient. They're not sweet. They just grumble and complain all the time. And so Moses goes over to the rock, and he is just ticked. The people are just whining and complaining. We don't have any water. Yeah. Like, we, we should have stayed in Israel or in, in Egypt. It would have been better for us. And Moses just gets ticked. He takes this, this staff that God has given him, and he just starts smacking the rock. He's like, you want water? Here's your water. And God, God produces. He, he pours out just tons of water out of this rock, enough to, to, to give water to all of the, the nation of Israel and all of their livestock. But he says to Moses, why did you do that? I told you to just speak to the rock. I was going to do that. Like, you didn't, you didn't uphold me as holy before the people. That's, that's the exact language that is used there in Numbers 20. You didn't uphold me. You, you, didn't, you didn't put me up in front of the people. You just got ticked and started beating the rock. with a Like, that's not what I told you to do. And he says to Moses, in that moment, he says, because you did this, you're never going to enter the promised land. I'll, I'll be faithful to you. I'm so many to be your God. I still love you, but you're not going to enter the promised land. There, there's a, I'm a just God. And there's a punishment for what you've done. You're never going to see the promised land. And God curses an entire generation. He says this entire generation is going to die out. And the next generation, they'll inherit the promised land. And sure enough, when Moses dies, right, Joshua leads the next generation of Israelites into the promised land. Right? That's, the, that's how the story goes in a nutshell. But now think about that for a moment. From that day, Moses knows something. 
This idea that he had in his mind, this dream, this vision of the promised land where he would build a house and retire in his old age. He could rest and be done leading these people. Praise the Lord, I'm done with that. I don't want to do this anymore. He's finally done. I can finally have a dwelling place, a house, a place where I can rest and just be an old man. He's never going to get there. For the rest of his days, Moses knows in that moment, and the people of Israel know in that moment, that they will never see it. For the rest of their days, they will live in a tent, wandering about in the wilderness. But Moses stands up in his old age and prays this over his people. And the first thing he says is, Lord, you have been our dwelling place for all generations. Yes, our forefathers, they lived in a different place. And they they didn't wander in the wilderness. And they they had houses. And they had all kinds of nice things. In, In our children and our grandchildren, they'll enter into the promised land. And they'll have nice things and they'll have nice houses. But for us, that's not, that's not our law. That's not who we are. But either way, it's okay. Because you have been our dwelling place in all generations. I may never live to see the promised land. But you have been our dwelling place in all generations. In that, that's enough for me. What Moses is doing is he's doing the opposite of what he did when he struck the rock. He's upholding God before the people. If we have nothing, he's teaching them, right? If we, if we have nothing or if everything that we have is taken away from us, if everything I have is taken away from me, all of my wealth, all of my possessions, all of my health, if everything is taken away from me and I still have God, I have all that I need. I need nothing more. You have been everything we need in all generations. And so it's okay. It's okay that we are people who will not enter the promised land because he has been our dwelling place for all generations. He's setting this up. He's, he's softening the hearts of the people. He's preparing them for something more. He's going to continue to prepare them in the next two verses. So he says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place for all generations. Then in verse 2, he says this, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting... You are God. You see, in order to see and understand that which is unchangeable and everlasting, we need that which isn't to compare it to. And this is what Moses is doing, right? Before the mountains were brought forth, before the earth was formed, these, are, these, are, are, these appear to be very, very long-lasting things. And they, I mean, they are very long-lasting things, but they're not eternal things. They are the longest lasting things that we can think of here, right? What's longer, what's, what lasts longer than the earth? The earth was here long before you and I were here, and it'll be here long after we are gone. The mountains were here long before you and I were here, and they'll be here long after you and I are gone. But they haven't always been here, and they won't always be here. We know this. Science tells us this. The mountains that we see around us were not always here. They've been formed over time. They weren't always here. When I first moved to Utah, we took a group of guys actually from the church. We went on a backpacking trip to Canyonlands National Park. And we, we backpacked through Canyonlands, and we came to a, a place called uh, Wooden Shoe Arch. And it's, it's, it's amazing. It looks like a wooden shoe. Like a, like a, there it is. Uh, it looks like a legit wooden shoe. And there's like there's a little arch in there like where the heel is on one side and the, the rest of the shoe, I don't know, the sole is on the other side. Right? It's, it's a really cool looking thing. 
I went back a few years ago with a group of guys hiking through Canyonlands National Park. And we round the bin. I'm like, oh, yeah, you guys, this, this, this archer looks like a wooden shoe. It's going to be amazing. We round the bin. It's not there. It's gone. The entire thing has crumbled away. It's still on the map. It still says wooden shoe arch, but you go there, and it's gone. You'll never see it. You'll never lay eyes on it because it's a, it's a pile of little rocks at the bottom of an entire valley. It's, it's literally fallen off the face of the mountain. It's gone. It had been there for a very, 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 very long time, but it's no longer there. The mountains that we stare at when we drive into Salt Lake City, those unbelievable mountains, they haven't always been there, nor will they always be. This is what Moses is doing. He's stacking something. He's showing us. He's putting this, this picture in front of us. He says, this is not so with our God. He was, and he is, and he is to come. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is, as Moses says, from everlasting to everlasting. He's from everlasting, right? There's never been a moment, there's never been a second when he has not been. He is infinite, right? Those who would say God was at some point in time born or God was at some time created have never read their Bibles. The Bible again is clear again and again. Moses doesn't say he, he is from the beginning to the end. No, he doesn't say that. He says he's from everlasting. He is from infinite to infinite. There, there is no space and time with our God. There's no, there's no moment where he didn't exist. We can't, it's hard, it is very hard for us to wrap our mind around this, but we must try. Eternity is just outside of our, the grasp of our, of our little minds. He's always been. There's never been a moment when he has not been. And he will always be. He, he is not, he's not diminishing. He's not growing weaker. He's not growing frailer. He, he's, not, he's not withering. He's not fading. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. For, for an infinite, infinite eternity, he has always been and always will be constantly the same. He's never, he's never growing stronger because he can't. He's infinite power. He's never growing weaker. He's infinite power. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. From, from eternity to eternity. From everlasting to everlasting. So often we find it hard to understand God because we view him through kind of our human lens. I don't understand how, how, why God would do things that way or why he would treat this person that way or why he would say this to this person. I don't, it doesn't make any sense to me because we're looking at him because you shouldn't do that. You're looking at him through this human lens, or even, or even at best, a heavenly lens, right? God is this figure sitting up in the heavens someplace, but he's so far beyond either of that. The heavens are not infinite. The heavens have not always been. The angels have not always been. They have not always been. Only our God is from everlasting to everlasting. He is so far beyond any of that. Then he says this in verse 3. It says, you, remain, you return man to the dust and say, return, O children of man. You return man to the dust and you say, return, O children of man. He uses that word twice, return. And I think it's interesting. So often we think of life, maybe you do this, I, I do this. I, when I think of life, I think of like we begin here someplace. Right? Birth is here and death is here. My life is like a line, right? 
um, as a beginning and as an end, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a line. But that's not what the picture that Moses paints for us. Calvin takes this and he, and he describes it as a circle, right? Here's, here's actually what Calvin says. Calvin says, a short revolution, speaking of life, he says, a short revolution in which we quickly complete our circle, the last point of which is the termination of our earthly course. He says, life's more like a circle, right? We begin here, right? And we live our, we live our lives, live our lives, live our lives. Somewhere like, this is like 40-ish, right? If, if you live, you know, to an old age, and you come right back to where you began. You, you, we return to the dust, right? From, from dust to dust, right? We begin here, and we, we, we walk, and we walk, and we walk. We do all the things that we do in our life, and we return right back to where we begin. We don't, we don't start here and, and end here. We, we, are, we are a people who are just returning back to where we began. And Moses, Moses is stacking the eternal next to the fragile. He's stacking that which is infinite, next to that which is finite. But he's also stacking infinite worth next to worthlessness. Majesty next to dust. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And you return man to the dust. That which is infinite next to that which is so unbelievably finite. That which is majesty the one who formed the earth and the mountains next to dust. Whether you realize it or not, that is who we are. There's so much talk right now in our world about self-love, right? You got to love yourself, man. You got to get up in the morning. You got to speak that mantra over you. You got you to do that, that, those morning exercises, telling yourself, looking at yourself in the mirror and telling yourself that you are beautiful, you are loved, you are worthy, you can do it. You can get it done. You are the man. You are the woman. You, you are the one, right? Because you've got to pump yourself up if you're going to get it done because dust can't get it done. So we spend our days convincing ourselves of something that is not true. Here is the truth. If you give your life the full exploration of thought that it deserves... If you give life the full exploration of thought that it deserves, you actually lean in and you really think about what life is and you, and you view it as, in the right way as this circle from dust, walking this whole circle all the way back to the same beginning, right? You will inevitably arrive at the same place that every single great philosopher and great thinker has arrived at when they, when, when they give life the full exploration of thought that it deserves, you will inevitably find the same thing at the end of that journey that they have found. Nothing. There is nothing there. There's no meaning there. There's no purpose. There is no worth. And there is no value. Happy Sunday. Some of you guys are like, wait, what is happening right now? This is, I brought a friend, man. You can't, you can't say that. That's where our culture's taken us. You're not allowed to say that, but it's true. In, in his day, Solomon was considered the wisest man who had ever lived. He didn't give himself that title, right? The other kings of the world gave him that title. God gave him supernatural wisdom. And the people said, man, this is unbelievable wisdom. Solomon, in his amazing work, Ecclesiastes, begins with these words. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 1, he says this. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does a man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind on its circuits and the wind returns. He says, listen, what do we gain by all of this? The person starts here and they become a master at their craft. They still arrive here. The person starts here and they, and they live their life as an absolute couch potato. They still arrive here. What do you gain by all of your toil under the sun? Don't you realize it's the same thing? It's, and he, this, he's describing the same thing that Calvin describes, a circle, right? The sun goes up and the sun goes down. He's talking about your life. It's just, it's, for, for every single person on the planet, it's the same thing. You live and then you die and that's it. There's, there is no purpose. There is no meaning. Vanity of vanities. There's nothing there. The wind blows to the north, but then it comes right back up from the south. There's nothing there. There's no purpose. There's no meaning. It's just this constant motion of the same thing every single day. We crave worth. We crave value. We crave purpose. We crave acceptance. We crave meaning. There's got to be something here. There, there must be some level of meaning, but it's not there. It's not there. But we crave it. This is why the preacher who, who preaches your you how to live your best life now. You are valuable. You have meaning. You have purpose, right? Say it with a smile on your face because you can do it. They'll fill stadiums. This is why the New York Times bestseller list, right, is packed with books that are all going to help you live your best life and tell you that you are valuable and you're worth it because we crave it. We need it. We need worth and we need value. But the truth is, here is the reality of the situation. We wake up in the morning and we tell ourselves that we are worth it, we are valuable, we, are, we, are, we, are, we, have, we have purpose, we have meaning, right? And we bury our heads in the sand and you live your life. I have purpose, I have value, I have meaning. And we tell our kids, right? You have purpose, you have value, and you have meaning. And you're, you're beautiful and you're wonderful and you're fearful. And, and you get somewhere right about here. And you wake up, you pull your head out of the sand, and you realize... That was never true. And all of this time is wasted. It's gone. And you'll never get it back. You've been living for all of the wrong things. Selling yourself a lie. And you never actually live because you're so consumed with making yourself something that you can't make yourself. You can't give yourself worth. You can't give yourself purpose. You've missed so much. Our dear friend, J.R. Vassar, uh, J.R., for those of you who haven't been around, J.R.'s been here a couple times. He's, he's the lead pastor at Church at the Cross, who is a partner church of ours here uh, at Flourishing Grace. And J.R. wrote a book called Glory Hunger, and he, and he writes this in, in the book. I'm going to read. It's a long quote. Um, he's a long-winded guy. Just kidding, for those of you who know him. Uh, he writes this, it's beautiful, and I want to read the whole thing because it's, it's really, really good. He says this, he says, A narcissistic glory hunger is destructive primarily because it means that one has taken a, a life's direction that is opposite to reality. You're telling yourself something that's not true. 
If we are going to truly flourish as human beings, we, we can't create an alternate reality, a little world with ourselves at the center. That is what lies at the root of illegitimate glory hunger an inordinate concern with an attentiveness to oneself. A world with everything orbiting around us will crumble because it's not real. We are not God and cannot shoulder the burden of being God. It is like that image of a little kitten looking in a mirror and seeing a lion. The caption reads, What matters most is how you see yourself. There's something to this. In particular, how we see ourselves before God does impact how we live in God's world. And that's what Psalm 90 is, the beginning of Psalm 90 is all about. But we also know that this is not all true. And the cat will soon discover, should it face off with a large and ferocious dog. What matters most is what is real. If we are going to be whole and flourish, we must move in the direction of ultimate reality, which means we need to center our lives on the right thing. We must glorify most that which is most glorious. We must love most what is most lovely. We must value supremely what is supremely valuable. The only way out of thinking too much about our glory, loveliness, and value is to be captured by a vision of the glorious, lovely, supremely valuable God. A vision of God's greatness and zeal for his clout and fame is, are the only things that will displace a zeal for personal clout and fame. It is this passion we see most fully in Jesus. Our friend says, if you, if you live your days telling yourself that you are a lion, someday you'll wake up and realize that was not true. And that'll be a painful day for you. That'll be the day that you get attacked by a ferocious dog. That'll be the day that, you, that everything in your life crumbles. And everything, all of the meaning and all of the value and all of the worth that you ascribe to yourself crumbles away from you. How devastating is that? How unbelievably horrible is that feeling and that, that idea? But that is what is in store for us. You say, I'm valuable. I'm worthy. I'm loved. If you don't think that I'm valuable, you're not going to give me worth, and you're not worthy of me. And so I cancel you. Some of you right now are canceling me. You're like, this guy's nuts. That's fine. I'm trying to help you flourish. Because there's flourishing in this. But you've got to come to the end of yourself. You cannot ascribe yourself worth. It doesn't work that way. I got a little boy, um, I got two little boys, but my oldest son is six, Winston is his name. And last summer, we were at Creekside Park here in Bountiful, and we found this cool rock. Like, I don't even know if it's really a rock. It's, it looks like it's got scales on it. It's like we found it in, in the creek, and we were, playing, we were playing in the water. He found it, he pulls it out, he's like, this is amazing. Like, that is like, actually pretty cool. So he brings it home, it's in his, it's in his room. One day, my Lego-obsessed six-year-old is like, Dad, I want, I want these new Legos. I was like, well, buddy, you got you to gotta save your money. You got you to save up for that. Like, okay. He, he leaves dejected. A few minutes later, I see my kid sitting at the end of the driveway with a, with a, with a table and a chair. I'm like, what is he doing? And I walk out there, and he's got a sign. And he's written on it, Rock, $100. <laughs> I'm not joking. I'm dead serious. And I don't want to crush his entrepreneurial spirit. Like, I believe in this. This is good. Like, sell that rock, kid. Okay? 
But how do I convince this? How do I tell this kid how to break it to him? Ain't nobody going to buy that rock. It's like 100 degrees out here. You're cooking, okay? Nobody's going to stop and buy your rock. So I'm like, hey, buddy, you know, you, I, I, this is great. Do this. But, but here's the thing. I don't, I don't think you can sell that rock for $100. He's like, well, why not? Well, because, you know, it's not, you know, you could, you could take it to somebody. Maybe they could tell you what it's worth. I, you know, maybe, maybe like a geologist could tell you what that rock is worth. But I don't think anybody thinks it's going to be worth $100. He's like, oh, okay. I'm like, why don't you come back inside before you get cooked, all right? Let's, we'll go back inside. I go back inside, and a few minutes later, I see he's still sitting out there. So I go back out. I'm like, buddy, what are, you, what are you doing? I look down, and he scratch out $100, and he put 50 <laughs> All right, kid, all right. Needless to say, he never sold that rock, but he did sell a rock to Ava Spinning for 20 bucks. <laughs> Turns out cuteness can sell rocks for 20 bucks. The point is this, just because you say you are worthy, just because you say your life has value, just because you say you are beautiful and wonderful and, and you, you are the best of the best, you are strong, doesn't make you any of those things. You can say it all day long, but at the end of the day, you're just sitting at the end of the driveway of your life declaring something that nobody else believes. I promise you this. If you take the field of battle, you go to war, and you tell the enemy, but I'm, I'm valuable, you're still going to get shot. They don't care. There's no value there. There's, there's nothing there. You can't ascribe worth to yourself. You, you just can't do it. So, so here, here, here it is. Okay. What, what do we do? What do we do with all of this? What do we do with this? Okay. Um, we, we, there's a lot we're going to do with it. Okay. Over the next several weeks, as we, as we walk through Psalm 90, there's so many things that, that Moses is going is to pull out of this deep truth. Okay? But for this morning, there's just one thing I want you to think about. Just one thing. Okay? If you are dust, if that's true of you if, you, if you have no more worth and no more value than dust... And God is infinite, infinite worth and infinite value, okay? And you are this finite little speck. How does he view you? How does he look at you? How does he see you? How should he see you? Now, some of you are quick to say because you grew up going to church, you're like, no, 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 but, but God loves me. Why? So you might say, well, God loves me because he created me. He has to love me. How do you view the dust in your house? Do you know where 50% of the dust in your house comes from? Yeah. Skin cells. Dead skin cells. So technically, you created it. Do you love it? Do you sweep it in piles and like, oh my gosh, my dust. I love my dust. Do you put your face on it and just kind of like, I love my dust. I love it. Do you do that? Do you, do you do that? No, you don't. They'd put you in a padded room for that. That's creepy, okay? That's gross. Nobody does that. And God's not creepy and God's not gross. He's not any of those things. So why does he love you? How, does, how should he view you? How should he see you? If you were to take a bucket of gold dust, like legit gold dust, and pour it on your pile of dust... And he said, I'm going to sell my pile of dust. 
now, now I'm interested, okay? Now I'll buy that dust. Before, that dust is worthless. But now, all of a sudden, you have added value to the dust. You've made it valuable. And this, friends, this is what our God has done for us. But he didn't pour gold dust on us. No, he turned the dust to gold. God has taken the dust and ascribed worth to it. Now, I said earlier, you can't just say that something is valuable and make it valuable. You can't do that. You have to do something in order to make it valuable. You see, he has given his only son to cleanse the dust. Jesus has made the dust pure, and he's made the dust holy. By his blood, Jesus has washed us white as wool and pure as snow. He has removed all of the dirt from the dust. He has made it valuable. He has made it like him. He has placed his own righteousness on the dust. In Christ, the dust becomes a holy priesthood. In Christ, the dust becomes a chosen people. In Christ, the dust becomes one with God. In Christ, the dust is called saints of the Most High. In Christ, the dust becomes equipped with spiritual armor. In Christ, the dust becomes the light of the world. In Christ, the dust is made alive, living stones, Peter says. In Christ, the dust is raised with him. In Christ, the dust is seated with him. In Christ, the dust is chosen and beloved and redeemed. And you can do none of those things on your own. Only the one who is from everlasting to everlasting could do that. As Charles Spurgeon once said, he said, Beauty will often win the affections against the man's better judgment. You see a woman... She's beautiful, but you know she's no good for you. That's nothing but trouble there. There is nothing but trouble there. But against your better better judgment, your affections are won over. But Christ's love to you was not won by any beauty that he saw in us. Christ did not die for you because you are worthy. He did not die for you because you are beautiful. He did not die for you because you are valuable. He died to make you those things. And he did completely and infinitely. For those of you in the room who are in Christ, you have infinite worth and infinite value, infinite meaning in him. And that is the only way you will ever attain any of those things. If you want to be whole and you want to truly flourish, you will only find those things in Christ. If you want to live a life of true worth and value and acceptance, you must find all of it in Christ. All of your beauty must come from Jesus. As Spurgeon also said, a man who thinks highly of himself will never adore God. We must start at this place. If you are going to walk the path of flourishing, if you are going to soak up all that Psalm 90 has to offer, and it has a lot to offer, we're going to lay a lot on the table over the next eight weeks. Okay, listen to me. You've got to start here. You cannot wake up in the morning and and try to convince yourself of something that's not true. You must wake up in the morning and tell yourself what is true. That Jesus has given you all of the worth and all of the value and all of the acceptance and all the purpose that you will ever want or desire or need. It is all found in him. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray for you guys. Let's pray.
Friends, this morning, if that's not true of you, if you don't know him, if you, if you don't have a relationship with him, if you've never given your life with him, don't wait another day. There is nothing in tomorrow for you. It's just another day on the circle. That'll be a wasted day, a day of worthlessness, a day of no value, a day of no acceptance. And I don't say that to bring you down. I say that to say, come on. I want to build you up. I want you to flourish. You'll never find it in you. Jesus, we come before you this morning and we declare that to be true. That we need you more than we need anything in this world. That all of life is wasted apart from you. All of life is meaningless apart from you. You have given everything to make us worthy, infinite worth. You've given your life to give us infinite value. You've given your life to give us infinite meaning. You've given your life to give us infinite purpose. And all of it's found in you. So help us today to find it in you. Help us to relinquish our grasp on the things of this world, the things that we have placed our value and our purpose in, the things that we've fought to seek glory in. Rip it from our hands. Lay us bare before you that we might walk before the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. We love you. We love you, Jesus. I pray this in your sweet name. Amen. Why don't you guys go ahead and stand?